0: Uh, This is given to equip the church in how to deal with suffering. Uh, Humility has been the theme of this uh, couple sections prior to this passage that we're in, uh, where Peter points out God's rewards for those who humble themselves. And that leads us to this section in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11, where Peter gives these last instructions for those who suffer. So let's take a look at it, and let's all stand. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Father, we, we pause and um, think of our team and people from our church that are in Guatemala now and ask that you'll continue to empower them, use them greatly. Um, may you transform lives and uh, work in a supernatural way and uh, continue to, to work through them. We thank you for them. We thank you for this opportunity now to gather together and to study your word. What a delight it is. What a pleasure to come together with your people and to learn from you, but more than that, to give your Holy Spirit freedom in our minds and hearts uh, to change us, to challenge us, to admonish us. So we invite you to do that, and especially when it comes to suffering, that you might um, encourage us. Uh, to have the motivation that helps us to endure well. I thank you for these, my brothers and sisters, that love your word. Take this time together and use it for your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I did a funeral recently of a, of a woman who attended our church, dear lady, and I uh, told the story how she once uh, wrote me, and uh, told me she got sick of my illustrations on sports. <laughs> and, and I had to admit, she was probably right. Um, I overused illustrations. So I've, I've tried to be judicious in my use of sports illustrations. It is certainly my interest, um, but here goes another sports illustration. Okay, um, So since I grew up in the Cleveland area, this one was uh, particularly uh, pertinent to me. But uh, the former head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, Tyrone Liu, proclaimed of LeBron James, who at the time played for the Cavaliers, and they won a championship under him. And this is what he said. He said, great things happen to great people, end quote. Now, in the realm of pro sports, that statement might be true. But the gospel of Jesus offers a very different take. And that is that um, great things happen to bad people, unworthy people, little people, poor people, to unrighteous people. All right? Now, that, in terms of rewards, in terms of what God provides us, I think those are true statements, that great things happen to people like us. In terms of life on earth, though, I would add this. Bad things happen to godly people. Um, I've never seen that put on a church marquee. (laughs) Um, But it's freeing. I think it's freeing to those of us who maybe uh, have come from a plasticky Christianity that concerns itself far too much with appearance. Bad things happen to godly people. Uh, I think Peter would agree with that. Uh, And we need to remember that our context here is with suffering. And he says, Humble yourselves therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So his point is for us to stay in a posture of humility before Almighty God. Now again, we need to stay consistent with the context of our passage and not venture too far off in understanding how we can humble ourselves. Peter is not encouraging Christians to cut themselves down, all right? He's not telling Christians to go around saying, you know, all oh, shucks, and look at the floor when somebody compliments you, okay? The context tells us this applies to suffering Christians. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Points to being humble and accept, just like we sang this morning, accept God's help and guidance, you know, that we're not alone. And we accept his help and guidance because he's able and he is willing. The suffering Christian's experience does not nullify the sovereignty and care of God. So we're not to resist or chafe Against God while suffering. These Christians are being urged to accept hardship humbly as part of God's plan for them. It's not like, you know, God is up in heaven saying, oh, shoot, I let that one get away from me. I wish that wouldn't have happened. No, no, God is all powerful, all knowing, sovereign. So humility is foundational to suffering well. And when Christians suffer um, poorly, you know, not, not in a good fashion, it starts with a weak understanding of God and that leads to a weak faith. Here we see God described as having a mighty hand, so much so that we are to have confidence that he will exalt or reward faithfulness one day, and he's going to help us escape the suffering on earth. Now, the Old Testament consistently reiterated the power of God when it would say, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand, for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such things and mighty acts as yours, That's Deuteronomy 3.24. And then, or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? And then in Daniel we read, and now, O Lord your God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name For yourself, God is able. And so, when we're humble, we are not self sufficient. The humble are also not consistently ticked at God. Now, all of us get angry with God, so I tried to choose my wording carefully consistently ticked. There are times that we get angry at God and then we realize, ah, wait a minute. I really have no right to that. Um, but And then we, we get in a different spot. But they're not consistently ticked at God. But they keep believing that he is sovereign even when they are suffering. And the humble are certain of God's rewards in his time. He's the creator. We are the created. All things are made by him and for him. And by him, all things exist. We can say by application, God determines the days of our lives. When we humbly know we need God at all points, and and he is in control, even in the suffering, we can say with the psalmist, here's here's a great passage, it is good for me. That I was afflicted, whoa, that I might learn your statutes. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Verse 7, Peter teaches us to lay our worries and needs before God because he loves us, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. According to our nation's bureau of standards, a dense fog covering seven city blocks to a depth of a hundred feet contains less than one glass of water. All of that fog, and it could be condensed into water, wouldn't quite fill a drinking glass. Compare this to the things that we worry about. Like fog, our worries can thoroughly block our vision in light of God's promises. But the fact is, they have little sustenance in them. It's the same with the anxieties that Peter addresses. Compared to God's promises, those worries don't hold much water. Because he cares for us. And the reason, this is great reasoning by Peter, that we can put our worries in the hands of God is because he cares for us. Now, we don't always believe that when we're suffering, but it doesn't change the facts. It's not unusual for us to be self-dependent in the midst of hardship. Uh, Do you remember when your parents were teaching you table manners? Okay, And you remember when they said, don't reach across someone's plate, but to ask for something to be passed to you, right? And in a similar way, Peter is saying, ask God for your needs instead of grabbing or trying to do everything yourself. In this case, we have to rest upon the fact that God cares for us. Because one of the ways we falter is the notion uh, of rejecting God's care while we suffer. Faith, on the other hand, rests in the fact that Christ is genuinely concerned for our welfare, right? Now, we sang a song, and I don't remember the exact phrase, but it was something about that uh, he cares so much for us that... We're not going to be wounded or, or, or hurt. And whenever I read that, I, I remind myself, that doesn't necessarily mean I won't suffer. It doesn't necessarily mean that my body won't hurt. It doesn't necessarily mean that I won't be persecuted or not tortured. I accept that that's a part of living on earth, right? Um, I don't want that, but I accept that that could be a part of the experience. But I think that when that... When when I read that or I sing that, I remind myself that my soul is in his hands, right? And that nothing can touch my soul and that I am cared for by God and that he can certainly um, intervene in any circumstance on earth the way he sees fit and he certainly does many times but ultimately my soul is secure in him. Um, And that, that helps me to sing such words with joy. So from Peter's perspective, anxiety can cause us to doubt God's care and his willingness and ability to meet our needs. Peter's taking a quote from the Psalms. It says, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. The crux of the thought means far more than you know just that uh, God likes us, but that He can provide what we need because He loves us. And when we conclude, I want you to listen to this and tell me if you think this is not fair reasoning. When we conclude that God does not care, and then we worry on a consistent basis. I submit to you that's a form of pride because we become convinced that we have to solve these problems on our own and in our own strength. God is not indifferent, and he's not cruel. He has compassion on his children, and he will sustain them. Many Christians live with the notion And I think this is related. They live with the notion that if they mess up, God is going to withdraw his protection, his love. They may agree that God saves them, but they think they have to keep their end of the bargain for the remainder of life, or God is going to pull the rug out from under them, and they will cease to be redeemed. This is not... Casting your burden upon the Lord. This is carrying the burden yourself. And this is self-dependence. He will never permit the Christian to be moved from the position of being a child of God. Because his promises are good and because he cares. Jesus was making this point in Luke twelve, five. He's saying not to fear, and then says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, God, it says, will care for us in the midst of of opposition, and the disciples, by implication, every uh, believer, um, so that includes us and the disciples that he was speaking to, are more valuable to God than a sparrow, right? Now, a sparrow is one of the cheapest items sold on the market. And only the poorest of people would buy them. So two of the smallest Roman coins would purchase five sparrows. And God keeps accounts of all the sparrows. Now, if God cares for something as cheap as sparrows... How much more does he care for humans? The implication is that all of human life is valuable. And even more specifically, since God knows each sparrow, he therefore has intimate knowledge about each of us and how we can be cared for. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, God even knows the number of hairs on your head. And this is a way of saying that he knows things about ourselves that we don't know. Right? Right? He knows what we can take, what we cannot. He knows what we're capable of, good or bad. And if God knows how many hairs are on your head and all there is to know about us, wouldn't he also know how much to allow in our life? God is intimately acquainted with our lives. His motive is is not to pile it on, but rather to allow whatever circumstances necessary with a particular goal in mind, and that is our conformity to Christ, our, our maturity, our, our character. And so God's uh, sovereignty is tempered by this, tempered by his love, tempered by these goals. And he's not going to permit anything. You know this passage, anything that we cannot handle. Romans eight twenty eight is often quoted as a wonderful truth that he works all things for good, but the passage later defines what is good and its specific character qualities that conform to Christ in Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Hmm. You know, as I think back on some of the greatest hurts and difficulties in my life, it is hard sometimes to get past the pain and to see the good of what God is doing, I don't think I'm any different than you in that. Uh, there, are, and there are some times where it was you know, much worse than others. But even in the most difficult times, I think if we were by ourselves and just being honest with ourselves, you can look back and see how God helped define for you the things that are really important to align priorities, to maybe crystallize your vision and what you wanted out of life, and allow peripheral things to just fall by the wayside. God knows what it will take to move us along to Christ's dependence. I really, and you really, don't have ultimate knowledge of what is best for us and what we can handle. But God does. And I, I'll often think, you know, I just, I just can't take any more. And then more comes and you're still standing. I get the feeling. But we are prone toward self-preservation, and therefore our bias isn't always for our maturation. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God knows the exact level of testing to allow in our lives to mature us. And then in 2 Corinthians, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And so God also knows how to use these difficult circumstances in our lives to create greater empathy for others. You know, when one of our kids was born and he had a heart ailment and surgery and several other surgeries after that... um, it created great empathy for Janet and I in terms of um, what other moms go through when they have troubled pregnancies. Um, now, we also learned not to be quick about sharing our story and tell everybody, well, let me tell you what went wrong with our baby. You know, <laughs> I don't want to do that to young moms. but <laughs> You never do that. But sometimes when people are suffering, you can empathize. So there's, there's greater godly influence, I think, God wants for us, greater empathy, pointing others to greater dependence upon Christ. So I think what, what Jesus, what Peter, what Paul are pointing to is that God cares for us. We are to trust in his character, and these truths are motivations to help us face difficult circumstances. This wonderful promise cares for you reminds me of the night when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and remember there was difficult circumstances and they asked Jesus in mark 4:38 do you not care that we are perishing i think most of us have uttered similar questions in our dark times. And Satan would have us to believe that this hardship, this trial, is evidence of God's indifference. But Peter reminds them that they may cast their care once and for all upon Christ. Verse 8 reminds us to stay awake and pay attention for Satan's schemes and attacks. Be sober-minded Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, if anybody's had experience um, with not paying attention to pride, it was Peter. I've also had experience with that, but Peter's our topic, so I'll stay with him. Um, But he saw how he uh, was capable of denying Christ, even though he said he was not capable of doing that. He had experience of being impetuous and trying to cut off the ear of a guard when they went to capture Jesus. He had experience falling asleep in the garden when he was asked by Christ to pray. So Peter seems intimately acquainted with how Satan tempts us deceives us, bothers us. Um, our passage says that the devil is like a lion that roars. And what does a roar do? It, it produces fear in the people of God. And in our passage here, I think we can surmise that persecution can be a roar to intimidate believers that their hope in Christ is useless during suffering. The roar tempts us to come to a conclusion that our hope in Christ is useless. And when believers falter in their faith, forget God, then the devil has devoured them by rendering them with a feeling of uselessness in such a season. Consider the contrast between God and the devil. God tenderly cares for his children, inviting them to bring their worries to him so that he can help them. He promises to protect the flock in the midst of their suffering. And conversely, the devil, his aim is to terrify believers. He does not want to deliver them from fear, but torpedo their faith by causing them to be fearful. Peter warned believers to be vigilant. And we're going to learn next week more about what they need to be vigilant in and how they can combat these attacks. We'll talk more about that. Now, Peter does not get terribly specific of the tactic of Satan, but I think the context feeds us information to draw some conclusions that um, I think are, are close to the target, in addition to other scripture that can shed light. And we know that one of the tactics of the devil is to deceive his victims and I think he does this far more than challenge us, challenging us openly you know, in some power struggle, as many Christians assume. In Revelation 12, 9, he's called the great deceiver of the whole world. And in verse 10, we read this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. So how does he accuse Christians? Well, we know that he accused Job as basically having a faith that was just based upon what he could get from God. Um, And that's one of the ways that he accuses. But when he deceives us, I think he accuses Christians or tempts us with the idea that God doesn't care or even that we're really not a child of God. And if you take it a step further, that we've sinned too much to be forgiven. And he accuses Christians that suffering demonstrates that God has left the building. Part of Satan's deception, I think, in this is that once we believe Christ saves us, we then think it's in our power to keep or lose our relationship with God. And this is what Galatians has to say about that. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh or in your own power and your own performance? And many Christians fall into this camp. Ask them if God is the one who saves them and most will say absolutely, yes. Ask them if Christ needs to be trusted alone for their salvation. And most will say, absolutely, yes. Okay? Ask them if there's anything they had to do <clears throat> to earn salvation. And most will say, no. Those are all good answers. But then a deception And I guess it can come in a variety of ways. Kind of wears us down, and it can leak in, and it echoes with Galatians 3. They say, God saved them, but their obedience is what keeps them. It is an appeal to the flesh and not Christ. It makes us feel like we're doing something. We think we don't earn salvation, but if we can lose it, that somehow means we have the power to keep it. That means our faith has shifted from Christ to self, and that is a big deception. We somehow think Christ's sacrifice is not enough for some of our present or future sins. Somehow think I have to keep my end of the bargain for my salvation to stay intact. Now listen, yes, my obedience relates to my evidence of salvation, which is in God's hands. And yes, my obedience relates to my rewards, which is in God's hands. And the common rejoinder to this is, yeah, but what about the Christian? Who does X, Y, Z? Let me ask you this. Don't you think God has complete knowledge of all of our sin, past, present, and future, at the time of our salvation? Doesn't he? Do you really think that God is holding his breath and just hoping we keep what is what? 30%. 50%, 50%, sir, 75% of our needed obedience to stay redeemed. This is a ridiculous notion that we have the power over God's covenant to us. And it's prideful to believe that we can abrogate God's promises that were true of us at one time, but now later they don't apply. It's prideful to think that we can nullify his power and his sacrifice on the cross. So don't be deceived. And some of the Christians in Peter's day were apparently deceived into thinking that God had forgotten about them, that God had ditched them. Satan was devouring their faith. Now listen, Satan can be given too much credit, and he can be ignored, and neither is a good option. I mean, some people see a demon behind every negative circumstance, and they they blame Satan for a, a flat tire or their rent going up, okay? And while we're to have great respect for the wiles and powers of the devil, we have to get our information from him primarily from the Word, and not our interpretation of experiences that we read about. The times that Janet and I have felt like we faced a direct assault from Satan and the times that I have personally witnessed demonic activity are not to engender fear. They're not to put into action some formula you know, or exuberance to lo- yell louder than Satan. We're gonna learn next week how Peter directs our steps in this regard. <clears throat> but I will say this, we don't have to fear. And neither do we have to be an expert on every move of Satan. Hear what I'm saying. I know that he schemes. I know that he lies. I'm aware. But my protection is not in understanding all of the intricacies of Satan. My protection is Christ. I'm aware he's there. But I'm to be focused on Christ and his provision. And I have nothing to fear. Draw near to Christ. And when you're aware of Satan, the Bible says, resist him and he will flee. We read this in James. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And Isaiah says, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. That's the truth of the matter. We've all seen, whether it's in our newspaper or other newspapers, a list of valuables that people have um, forgotten to claim. The Chicago Tribune had one of those a few years ago. They actually had to uh, print an entire supplement that was a legal notice published by the Illinois State Treasurer's Office seeking to give money away to rightful owners, the contents of things like abandoned safe deposit boxes, forgotten bank accounts, security deposit checks, uncashed paychecks, dividend checks. More than a billion, with a B as in boy, a billion dollars was owed to nearly five million people and businesses that the treasurer's office could not trace. The front page, uh, front page of the supplement listed the names and last-known addresses of 10 individuals or couples who were owed over $100,000. And what followed were 116 pages packed tightly with names like uh, Lucy Lee Ackerberg to Leonard Zizda. <laughs> it seems to me a shame that people can be unaware of their rightful treasures. Yet yeah, this is precisely the condition of many Christians who live without taking advantage of God's promise of peace, strength, comfort, protection, wisdom, love, and many other treasures that are entitled to us as heirs and being in Christ and Christ in us. Let us not be seduced by our flesh or by the evil one that our sin is greater than God's forgiveness, that our disobedience is greater than God's promises, or that our troubles are greater than God's sovereignty and love humility acknowledges the truth of who God is and that doesn't cease because we suffer let's pray